frantically pack everything up that isn't already packed up from your last move, and then you move it to the new location, and then you take years to unpack it. Well, the good of this is, is that I couldn't find the discs for my Bible works, even though I've registered and everything, uh, and I could get support online. I couldn't find the discs to reload it on the new computer, so I actually went through and organized my office trying to find the discs. Uh, which I didn't find, so I ended up upgrading, upgrading the software. Should I hide something else? <laughs> yes. So, some of Kara's honeydew list got done trying to get the computer configured to show up this morning. So, I want to say thank you very much. Um, I also, this morning, in my, uh, you know, I mentioned last week that I read through almost all of the Psalms trying to find an appropriate psalm that would capture um, the spirit of where we're at in our lives these days. And uh, I, again, did the same thing this morning. And I I couldn't find, really, a, a good psalm for the spirit of Christmas. Now, if you know one, just whack me on the back of the head. I mean, they're, they're very expressive as to who God is. I was trying to think, well, what has David got to say about our salvation and about the coming king? Uh, and he actually has a lot to say, but I just didn't feel that they were right for this morning. So I actually went to the very last psalm of David in the Psalms, which is Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And you'll, you'll say, well, this isn't a Christmas psalm. And that's really quite true, but it is, uh, what is Christmas about? Christmas is about the advent of uh, God becoming man as our Savior, and that there we, uh, in the course of our sin and rebellion against God, had become separated from Him, and there was no remedy. Which is one of those sayings when I read it in the Bible, and I read about the hearts of the people, and it gets to the point where it says, "And there is no remedy." What happens is, is that God intervenes. The only remedy is the miracle of God's intervention. And that's what's going on right now as we celebrate is God's intervention into, into history, into humanity. And one of the stories that we tell repeatedly throughout the year is who God is and what he's doing. And actually, Psalm 145 captures that. It starts out with a praise and then... I'll just point out three of the verses, and then we'll read through it. But in verse 8, it says, starts out with, the, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. You get to verse 14, it says, the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. You get to verse 17, it says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So what we see is a description of the king. The king that is born on Christmas Day. And so let's, somebody want to read through all of Psalm 145 now that I've given you some of the anchors in there? Anybody want to give a shot? Go for it. I really stole you, God, the king. I will praise your name
talk about the theme of your great kindness and sing about your justice. The Lord is merciful and compassionate. He is patient and demonstrates great loyal love. The Lord is good to all and has compassion on all he has made. All he has made will give thanks to the Lord. Your loyal followers will praise you. They will proclaim the splendor of your kingdom. They will tell about your power so that mankind might acknowledge your mighty acts and the majestic splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord supports all who fall and lift up all who are bent over. Everything looks to you in, in, in anticipation and provide them with the, the food on a regular basis. You open your hand and fill every living thing with the food they desire. The Lord is just in all his actions and sends love to all he does. The Lord is near all who cry out to him, all who cry out to him sincerely. He satisfies the desire of his loyal followers. He hears their cry for help and delivers them. The Lord protects those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will praise the Lord. Let all who live praise his holy name forever. Amen. <coughs> Mine, it says, forever and ever. Mm -hmm. yes. Amen. <clears throat> I, one of the great joys I have is to be able to tell people who God is and what he's doing. And this is a, a season particularly uh, well-suited to that because we get to remind people of what Christmas is all about. Who remembers where we left off last week in Second Samuel? I thought we read through 17. We did. Yeah. <coughs> we read through 17. 23. 23 was where we left off. And this morning, so, um, Second Samuel. Second Samuel, chapter 17. Let me, uh, zip over to kind of the outline real quick. and corrected 
Um, but there was a period after that where the result of that sin, uh, it affected David and his effectiveness as a leader. It affected his immediate family and how they uh, related to each other and behaved. And it affected the larger community and, and ultimately the whole nation. And then we find that a member of David's family, Absalom, um, who we find out is kind of a really conniving guy, um, had murdered his brother who was in line for the throne and then uh, had a plan of hanging out and, and winning the hearts of the people um, when he wasn't corrected for that and ultimately uh, had a, a full-on coup to, to take over the throne. And that's where we started here, was the breakout of that rebellion in chapter 15. And we understand in chapter 15 that, that Absalom had been working on this for quite a while. We get down to verse 6 in chapter 15 and talks about how Absalom was behaving. In this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel. He came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. It's important to understand that what this whole passage, these, these six chapters are about, is about the hearts of men and a battle for the hearts of men. And that this is the age-old battle. And what you see, if you look at this in a larger picture of how uh, the prophet... Um, which we know as Samuel, even though Samuel's passed away, Samuel is informing us about who Messiah is and how Messiah um, is designed to function as king, what the administration of God's kingdom on earth looks like and God's kingdom in heaven, and how a rebellion came in through sin and how that is corrected. So that's what we're seeing in the larger picture of Samuel. So we see that pretty well played out in this whole section. Uh, we see David as the good king. We see Absalom as the human king. So there's a contrast between the two. And as we've been reading through, what you see is you see the character of David contrasted with the character of Absalom. So what are some of the the points of contrast that we've looked at so far. David showed his concern for the people. And he showed that in a couple of different ways. What what was the first way that he showed concern for the people? Well, rather than the battle in the city, he exited. Yeah, so he, he saw that there was uh, a battle coming <laughs> and rather than uh, put the people um, at risk by having the battle here in, in uh, Jerusalem, and I'll zoom out just a little bit, so all of Israel here from uh, Dan to Beersheba, and down here in the middle of, uh, I blew it up, you see Hebron, Jerusalem's right here, but it's you know it's it's close enough that um, if you did a, a battle there in Jerusalem, it would be a very hard fought battle. Um, it would be um, a lot of people would be injured in doing that. 
So he showed concern for the people by recognizing that this wasn't going to be solved uh, by a battle in Jerusalem easily and that a lot of people would be lost. So it was better to, to evacuate the city. What, what are some of the other ways he showed concern? Well, if I understood you last week, didn't you say that um, David, knowing his past history, was wondering if God was telling him, okay, you're done as king, and Absalom will be in your place. And he wasn't sure of it. He wasn't positive. So it was like he was saying, okay, Lord, if my time is at an end, I will leave, and Absalom will be king. Yep. So, and that actually is a very courageous thing, to recognize that God has his plan and his seasons, and that our um, participation in that is according to what God wills. And so David recognized that, oh, there, this may be a transition point, and what would be good for the people would be to follow God's plan, not his plan. You know, David certainly wanted comfort and, and uh, to grow old and finish well in his job, but God may have had other plans. So he recognized that that may be the succession and he was going to cooperate with God. What other ways did, do we see David's character and compassion as the king? Uh, his compassion and um, forgiveness for Absalom himself. Um, Joab, of course, had the natural human response. And one of the primary lessons in Scripture is forgiveness. And that is the one thing that most of us fail to really comprehend fully. Um, Seventy times seven and... Um, it is such a healing thing to do, and yet we resist with a passion. Yep, we're going to see David take that to uh, an extreme that the people thought was not good. As and far to as some respect, it may not have been, but still, there's a lesson there that we can all learn. There is a lesson there that we can learn, and that David uh, wanted to see the good in his son Absalom, even though Absalom was not displaying good character, right? But David wanted to see the good. <clears throat> Think about that from our Heavenly Father's perspective. When he looks at us, what does he see? Does he see our miserable failures? <coughs> yeah, he does. He looks <laughs> But how do we hold our head up in the presence of God? We recognize that he sees us through his son. We have the blood on our doorposts. That's right. We have the blood on our doorposts. We have God's covering on us. And he looks at us in, in what we can be in him, not in what we are presently. And so that's, that's a characteristic of Messiah, that he looks for the good and he sees the good. Not that he is ignoring the, the wrong. In fact, when we read through the Psalm 145, the very last verse, I mean, it's extolling God's character and talking about his compassion and mercy and his uh, provision 
and his justice, and it gets to the very end of that, and I'll turn to it. Part of, part of justice is not ignoring. It says, The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And anytime I read that in a psalm, it's like it just kind of makes the hair in the back of my neck stand up. So I'm reading all these wonderful things about who God is, and yet he will not ignore the wrong. And we need to pay attention to that. But what he desires and what he sees in us is the right. Not that we are right, but that in Christ we are new creatures. And so David has that same hope in view in Absalom. You ever, you know, our hope is in in the Lord, what is his hope? His hope is that we will be in him. Right? And he sees us in that hope. Just like we see him in our hope as our Savior. It's an interesting tension. What are some of the other ways that uh, you see the character of David displayed here as king? He's humble in the face of public disgrace. He was humble in the, the face of public disgrace. Yes. So even though he was cursed, he chose not to act against that. And he was uh, shamed in that action. I mean, everybody that was with him was hearing all of these curses and all of this, you know, you're not um, worthy of being king. Instead, Saul should be in that, that position. It was kind of the claim. So he was in the midst of shame. He bore the shame. We read that about Messiah. He bore our shame. Right? So you see that in David. You also see that he had a very um, God-centered view of humanity in that he recognized that God has a place among people, and that he wanted to make sure that that place was was kept. He wasn't going to take the ark with him. He was going to send the ark and the priest back to Jerusalem, because part of what he had been doing was centralizing uh, the government uh, as far as administration among men, but also religion, or the religious practice among men. Yes? Um, it seems to me there's a little difference between Jesus when he bore our shame he was undeserved yes um, but David was maybe somewhat deserving of the, the ridicule that he got there not totally but he did he was culpable to at least to a way greater extent than the Lord is for us in our yes days. Well, and and I I would agree with that, that certainly David um, was, you know, he had culpability in some of the things he was being accused of. Um, But he took it, and that's the the point of character here. Yeah, well, and and there was more to it than that. If you look at what the accusations were that were being leveled at him, is that he was not, uh, what Shania was saying was, is that he was not um, the rightful king. He was saying that the house of Saul was the rightful king. Now, that was beyond David's behavior. That had to do with God's anointing and God's plan. And so some of the shame that he bore was because of his own failure or 
because of the course that he was on, it looked like he was not the rightful king. And yet he bore that. Um, the same thing is true of Jesus. When he was confronted, they said, who are you? If you're the Christ, you know, we have an expectation that the Christ is the conquering king. And here you come. You don't even have a place that you live. Right? What's your address? That was the first question that Jesus was asked when he started his ministry, by the way. <clears throat> John and Andrew were there uh, with John the Baptist. We're talking about John the Evangelist, the son of Zebedee. And Andrew, the Peter's brother, were hanging out with John the Baptist because they were um, very devout Jews. And they wanted to um, do what was right uh, in God's eyes and become godly men. And so they were hanging out with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed and said, that's the one that you should follow. That's the Son of God. That's the Messiah. And so they turned around and they left John the Baptist and started following Jesus. And they were kind of following him from a, a little bit of a distance. If you read the story, and Jesus turned around and said, what are you looking for? And instead of saying, well, we want to find out if you're Messiah, they say, where do you, where do you live? What's your address? Who's your daddy? That's, that's what they were asking. Who's your daddy? What's your address? And uh, Jesus said, well, come on, and I'll show you. And he didn't take them to where he was living because he took them and showed them who he was. And that's exactly then Andrew went and said to Peter, said, hey, guess who we found? We found the one the scriptures talked about. So um, the reason I bring that up is because when Jesus was presented as the king, nobody believed that he was the rightful king. They believed that he was either... Uh, an imposter, a liar, a lunatic. They did not believe he was the Lord. And as a result of that, they allowed him to be crucified. And some actively sought his crucifixion. Because he upset their worship of God, not the right worship of God. But what David had a concern for, and I, and I would say that even in his shame, he bore some unjust shame. He recognized uh, that uh, God's central part in, in humanity belonged in Jerusalem, that the ark, the presence of God, the throne of God belonged there, and that he wasn't going to interrupt that. So uh, what else do we see about David? The curse of Shammai was thrown. One of the things that he said was that David shed the blood of uh, Saul's household. Up until this point, he, he, he really did his best to avoid that. That's right. So that was actually, if, if this is going to chronology, that's actually a false curse. That's right. It was a false statement. In fact, um, David did have blood on his hands, but it wasn't uh, Saul's blood. I mean, it was Philistine's blood and others' blood. Uh, and he did, not that David didn't have uh, reason for some shame. I mean, he had uh, uh, Uriah killed, right? So certainly he was had blood on his hands. But you're right; the curse that was given was a false was a false accusation. <coughs> and and David recognized that you know what I can't answer to this. So he shut up. He shut up. So we see all of this type 
But that's what makes it a good character thing. Because several right. of the curses were actually incorrectly founded. Instead of disputing that. <laughs> right. Or whatever. He said, you know what? If the Lord is doing this, I accept it. Right. So what did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He recognized that false accusations were being made. That he was going to be cursed for humanity. And he said, Lord, if you will, take this cup from me. Not your will, my will, but your will be done. <clears throat> That's, and, he, and then he was quiet against the accusation. The only thing that he answered was when the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. And he said, You said it. You said it. He said, It's out of your own lips. I am the Christ. And after this, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, right? Which was a reference to Daniel 7.13. About what the, if, if you look at, at Daniel, and I'm going to, this is a rabbit trail, sorry. Um, if you look at Daniel, five kingdoms are described in Daniel. Four of them are kingdoms of men. And uh, one of them was the kingdom of the Babylonians, another was the kingdom of the Medo-Persians, another one was the, the kingdom of the Greeks. And then there's this fourth kingdom, which we'll argue about, because uh, it's not clear if that kingdom has come and gone, or if it's continuing, or it's yet to come. But what you see in the description of those four kingdoms is how the administration of uh, society and governance and religion of men operates through uh, um, an absolute monarchy, through a system of law, through repression, through military might, right? And through a mix of all three. And what, what you see then is a fifth kingdom that was not put in place by men. It was carved, it was the rock that was carved out of uh, without hands. And that when it just strikes the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of men completely collapse upon themselves. And that that fifth kingdom grows larger and fills the whole earth. Right? And what you see in Daniel chapter 7 that Jesus quotes is the coming king of the fifth kingdom. So, what we're seeing as we look at Samuel and the kings is a picture of what these kingdoms of men look like and what the kingdom of God looks like and what the just king looks like. And that's why I'm pointing out, see, what we're seeing is a contrast between the kingdoms of men in Absalom and the kingdom of God in Messiah. Not that David is the Messiah. In fact, we know that he's very, very uh, frail and faulty. But nonetheless, we're seeing the character traits of Messiah portrayed. That's why they say David is a type of Christ. And, they, uh, and that Christ would come from the line of David. What does that mean? You know? um, so that's what we're seeing here as we go through and we look at this contrast. And so we saw um, the path of David as he retreats. And I'll point that out a little bit. David. Yes, sir. One thing that I think is kind of conspicuous and bothers me is through all of this, there's no Eli or Samuel or Nathan or anybody coming to him with wisdom. 
put this whole Absalom thing in perspective. David isn't this right? David's kind of out there by himself. He is out there by himself. So what happens is, and, and guess what? This is what happens to us. At some point, um, God holds us responsible as his creatures. And he's given us a revelation, right? And he's spoken to us through the prophets and through his son. In fact, when we get to Hebrews, so one of the things I really like is that the Bible is all one story. And yet we've got all these authors and contributors to it. Uh, authors. It says here in uh, Hebrews, it said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And the radiance, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, yes, sir. Well, I was just going to say to me that's one of the proofs of the Bible, one of many. Yes. To be written over that long a period of time by that many different people through that many different cultures and still have a totally common, agreeable theme story all the way through. The odds against that happening by accident or anything else are so astronomical that it just doesn't wouldn't make any sense it's, that it's, it not be true. It's not only astronomical, but there is not a single story that we would take in our, as part of our understanding of reality where we would take it apart and break it into single sentences and make a sentence a complete philosophy or understanding of the world. We wouldn't. We would take the whole story. And so that's why Bible study is so important, that we're to be informed by the whole counsel of God, and that we're to look at context, both context of the whole, context of the book, context uh, related to the author and other works, context of uh, the, the type of writing it is, whether it's narrative, or whether it's a, a rhetorical argument, or whether it's a, a poetry, all of these things are to inform us as to how we understand the story of God. But it is all one story. And what we see is that, so I'm drawing on types. I'm taking a step back and I'm saying, look at, look at what's going on in Samuel here. We're looking at types, a larger story about what's happening in man. This isn't just about the events of David's life and a miserable time when he, his son rebelled against him, he deserved a good spanking, but he couldn't give it to him, so he decided to take off. Uh, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is a larger story about humanity and the struggle for the hearts of men. And that at some point, we're going to be just like David. We're not going to have the counsel of those uh, prophets and maybe not even have the written word of God what we'll have is we'll have Christ in our heart. We'll have the Holy Spirit speaking to us in our heart. And from that, we need to make judgments. And what you see is that David, as a human king, is preferring God, right? He's putting God first. And the next thing that you'll see David do is that he will... Um, Approach God, uh, not only as first, but he will approach him in prayer. And he will speak <coughs> to 
right? And you see the same kind of pattern repeated in Daniel. When we get to Daniel and we get to chapter 8, I'll point these very same things out again. But that's what you see is happening here in the life of David. What's interesting, as we read through, we find out uh, it informs us about our broken condition as well. So it's not just telling us about who God is and who Christ is, uh, which we like to celebrate and point out, but it also tells us something about who we are. So what happened in the last part of the story where we found that uh, David's friend Hushai had stayed back into uh, and became part of the council of Absalom, and we saw the clash of the counselors, right? So first we saw David's retreat, and David's retreat was um, from Jerusalem over, you can see a little valley here, if I blew it up, I could go one step further, maybe I will, since I can. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a whole bunch of green and brown, right? Okay. Um, this is the Dead Sea, down here at Jericho, so this is, um, I don't know how many people at sea level. It's uh, 14, no, 425 meters below sea level right down here. Um, so David's right here at about 800 meters, and he's crossing this valley. This valley right here is the Kidron Valley. In fact, you can see it's a Kidron Brook right here. So he leaves Jerusalem, he goes down into this Kidron Valley, and he comes up over this hill here, which is called the Mount of Olives. And as he comes across the Mount of Olives, he comes down near a, t a town called, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, it's called Bethany. <coughs> right? So he goes right past Bethany, and he heads uh, across then from Bethany over this ridge route where he'll be able to see Anathoth, which is where Jeremiah was from. And by the way, Jeremiah, we call him the weeping prophet, he was the one that prophesied about the captivity uh, of the Jewish peoples that they would be taken captive and that after 70 years a command would be given to rebuild uh, the city of Jerusalem and that he gave a prophecy um, ultimately that Daniel would add on to that talked about the coming of Messiah, uh, the real Messiah not just David. And so anyway then he would head down this, this, uh, this ridge route down here as he's heading towards Jericho. So he's following the very path in reverse that Jesus followed when he entered Jerusalem to be presented as king. Because Jesus, if you read the story in the New Testament, started at Jericho, and he followed that same path, took the ridge route up, went by Anathoth, came over here to Bethany, hung out at his friend Lazarus' house, whom he raised from the, from the dead, with Mary and Martha, and then he came over the Mount of Olives, came down the Mount of Olives into the Brook Kidron there, Kidron Valley. And that's when they laid palm leaves in front of him. He was riding on a donkey. And he came into Jerusalem. And I believe that that was uh, March 30th, 33 AD. And I, when we get to Daniel, we'll talk about that. Um, and that's the path that Jesus took in. That's the very path that, that David is following as he retreats. Okay? So you see all of this interesting history and typology of repeated uh, geography and references and uh, a type of who Christ is. 
where David retreats and he comes back in. He retreats because of rebellion and he comes back in as the king. And in the course of this, this retreat, we saw the clash of the counselors. Uh, Hushai, who stayed behind um, with Zadok, uh, the priest, and uh, what happens is that he stayed there to confound the counsel of Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, right? And so we find out that Ahithophel says, if you're going to take, stay into Absalom, he's saying, if you're going to take the nation, do it in one shot, just kill David. If you kill David, the whole thing's over, and you are the king. And you better not delay, you better do it now. And Hushai comes in, and he tells Absalom, he says, you know, that's smart, but you got to remember who David is. David's a mighty warrior. You're not going to be able to take David out. What you need to do is you need to muster all of your armies so that you overwhelm them with numbers. And in overwhelming them, you'll be able to not only kill David, but all of the other rebels with him. And Absalom follows that bad advice. Well, Hushai then sends a message to David saying, hey, this is what Ahithophel said. And what happens in the course of that? Do you remember? So if we look in, in 17 verse 15, so then, then Hushai, pardon? Two of the messengers were, were hidden in the well. That's right. Two of the messengers were hidden in the well. What happened was, is uh, Hushai tells... Uh, 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 okay, I'm going to find his name so I can say it right here. Uh, Ahimaaz uh, and Jonathan that this is going on and sends them to tell David and they are on the run but they're, they're seen when they're running and so a woman who is unnamed hides them and when uh, she's confronted she gives a story that they're not there, they've already departed they've crossed the brook right? That's where we left off last time, that, that uh, there's this apparent lie uh, that this woman tells in order to protect the spies who then go and report to David. Uh, and when Ahithophel hears this, he kills himself. That's where we left off. I'm going to read just a little bit ahead and then we're going to come back to that. Yes, sir. Since we've been kind of on a rabbit trail to here, <laughs> and, and you mentioned that uh, you believe that uh, Jesus went in in 33 AD, March 30th. Yeah. Okay, so just out of curiosity, uh, has nothing to do with the lesson. When do you believe, or do you have a date for his birth? For his birth? Okay, the reason I don't. Jesus that's coming up this week. Yeah, actually, actually I do. Um, there is a widely held belief that the 25th of December was a pagan holiday and that in order to preserve uh, Jesus, the remembrance of Jesus' birth that they would assign it to another holiday in the, in the calendar of the time. There is a scholar, a guy by the name of Harold Honer. He was a Dallas uh, seminary uh, professor. He was a student there and then went on, got his PhD and his THD, and, uh, and taught 
there's uh, about the dating systems. He's a, a language guy, understands uh, Aramaic, understands Hebrew, understands culture and custom and history. Both. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. To, I'm making an appeal to authority, so I have to build up the authority. Otherwise, no, no merit. Right? The authority is Harold Honer, and he did a study which is published in the Chronological Aspects of Christ. And he took the datings of Daniel in the calendar system of the day, and he took that from the signing of the, uh, the proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem and the 70 weeks of, of Daniel, and actually, using the dating systems of the time, came out to be March 30th, 33 AD. He also did a study as to when Christ was born. Two dates came up. Now, it just so happens that April 3rd, 33 AD, was indeed uh, a uh, Passover. And not only that, but it was a special Passover, right, which is required in order to match the accounts in John and the other accounts. So, sure enough, everything else lines up. He, he did a further study to try and determine when Jesus was born, based on when Herod the Great uh, was died, and all of that. And he came up with two possible dates. December 4th and December 25th. Yes. When he died, you say? Yes. When he was born. When he was born? Why is the Orthodox Christmas January 7th? Yes, sir. The people in the East, like Russia and so on, adopted the Gregorian calendar. So in the Pope of the Middle Ages said, you know, we're way off here by 14 days. We're just going to say that, you know, tomorrow would have been, what, March 1st, now tomorrow will now be March 15th. Right. And he, had, and he, he just bumped ahead because he had the authority to do so. Right. And that was eventually adopted by pretty much everybody in the, in the Western world and because the, the British and the French had more influence than anybody, the, the calendar they were using was commonly adopted. And so the, the Orthodox churches right. never did that, which is why the date for the Orthodox Church, like the Russians, yeah. would be now January, what we think is January 7th. Right. And like so. The old calendar, it's still December 25th. Right. And the, they the, never consulted the Mayans. <laughs> they never consulted the Mayans. Well, the Mayans, the Mayans ran out of stone. What happened is God said that he was going to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. In other words, the, the revelation that comes to humanity, which has not reached its uh, well, terminus. The reason they knew it was the end of time is because that was the end of Twinkies. Yes. <laughs> so, so the Twinkie is dead. To get back to it, to, to assign December 25th as a pagan holiday, and then that's the reason why we celebrate Christmas on that day is not correct. It's actually based upon evidence that the early church fathers had and that it goes way back in church history that it was on or around the 25th of December. When I say around, it could have been the 4th of December. And so there's a lot of scholarly work to support that. So what we're getting ready to celebrate is indeed the birthday like you would celebrate your birthday. You know what day you were born on, right? 
It's just kind of hard for me to see shepherds in the field with their flocks in December. They have winter over there, too. Mm-hmm. They have that, flocks that all year round. That doesn't make sense to me. What's that? They have flocks all year round. Well, they I have mean, flocks, so but I don't know that they'd be out with them that way. Their pasture isn't going to be that good. They must have them corralled and be feeding them that time of year. Um, yeah, one of the things that, okay, if you look at Bethlehem area, um, it's mostly rock, number one. Uh <laughs> Everything is outside. So where people lived was primarily they would have a little cubby and then they would live on the roof. All the cooking was done on the roof, all the cleaning was done on the roof. Um, And typically if they wanted to preserve their animals, what they'd do is they'd put them in the house, right? Or they'd put them in their cave, their cubby. Well, in this particular instance, because of the time of year, their cave was shared residence. And so when uh, Joseph came to his uh, historical family uh, in Bethlehem because he was of the line of David so he went to Bethlehem to be registered there was no room for him at the family house so he ended up getting the part of the house that would have been uh, reserved for the animals in the wintertime the cave and sure enough the shepherds would have been out in the field because you can't fit all of those sheep into the caves there aren't that many caves there that's my understanding of how, because you're right, in December, it's cold and miserable. And but they didn't have big enough places to put a whole bunch of sheep. If you had a whole bunch of sheep, they're going to be outside. They're going to be outside. They're not going to be inside. But yeah. the animals that are you're going to, are going to be your most valuable animals are going to be inside. And that's why he would have been born in a stable. So the stable was part of a private residence, not part a Part of a private residence. I believe it. Yeah. Now... You know, we read it. We read it like, okay, yeah. We went to a motel they got, they got to, there was no room in the Motel Six. So <laughs> they ended up being down underneath the bridge, which might be true today, but it wasn't true in that day. You know, Bethlehem was a small little town. It wasn't, uh, and yet it was on the ridge route, so people would have opened their homes because hospitality is very important. So they would have opened their homes, but in this case. Joseph actually had a reason to be there. He had family ties. And the other uh, point about those sheep is that most of those sheep that the shepherds were watching uh, belonged to the temple. They were right. sheep that were literally destined for sacrifice. Right. And so they're, they're being kept out there. The, and the employees... The shepherds who are working, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they've got a job. Right. You know, it's not a very exalted job. It's kind of maybe the parking lot attendant. But they're out there keeping track of those sheep that belong to the temple. Right. You know, if they were privately owned, you know, then, yeah, you would make sure they're in your own sheepfold. And right. They're under important. direct supervision. But these are sheep that... You know, they, they actually belong to, you know, a higher authority. And the, you couldn't get a, a cave or whatever big enough to hold all the sheep. Right, exactly. And you so they would... Back in chapter 17. Yes. Back in chapter 17. <laughs> now that we've gone down that rabbit trail. Well, I believe December 25th. I believe April... Third for the we love those rabbit trails, though. So we learn stuff. stuff. We learn stuff. It's all education. So, so the question is that came up last week, and uh, what we're going to see is that um, 
If we let, let's go ahead and read through, because we hardly ever do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read. But which one? Where yet? I'm going to read in chapter 17, verse 24, through uh, chapter 18 or verse 18 of chapter 18. So uh, then David came to Manahim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan. He and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ethra, the Israelite, who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now when David had come to Manahim, Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah, the sons of Ammon, Machir, the sons of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzilei, I don't have it here in the Hebrew to pronounce right. The Gileadite from Rogalim uh, brought beds, basins, pottery, Hebrew, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So what happens is David retreated down here and he's headed up here to Manaheim. And I know I only have five minutes, but we truly will get there. Whoops. You're fine, you're fine. And um, I don't have my glasses on. Is that in focus? <laughs> Karen, where's your glasses? <laughs> I can't find my glasses. There. Okay, so what you see up here is Lodabar in the north, Manaheim here. This whole area is known as Gilead. And what happened is, is David came over, crossed over the Jordan, and he gets to Manaheim. And these friends from the surrounding uh, region of Ammon are providing for him. And in the meantime, Absalom and his troops come in, and they cross the Jordan, and they're down here, kind of south and east of Manahim. Uh, it says that they brought the food, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Yeah, no, no doubt. Then David numbered the people who were with him, set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So this was not a big troop. There was a few thousand uh, associated with David in this retreat. Maybe as many as, as 10,000, probably not. Probably on the order of uh, 4,000 or so. David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, you should not go out. For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by the hundreds and thousands. The king charged Joab and Abishai and the tithes, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David. And the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule 
and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule that was under him kept going. When a certain man saw it, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Then Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver in a belt. The man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king charged you and Abishai and Atai, saying, Protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you, then you yourself would have stood aloof. The, and Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand, and he thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered all around and struck Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing him. Israel, and Joab restrained the people. They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest, and erected over him a very deep, a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, each to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and had taken and set up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's valley, that is uh, the Kidron Valley. For he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's Monument to this mm. day. That's fine. I got through the passage. Uh, <laughs> Absalom's Monument is still there to this day. You can still see it in the Kidron Valley. If you go there with us next time we go, we'll show you Absalom's Monument. What you see is that the battle either took place here in, uh, in Gilead or over here in Ephraim. We don't know for sure whether they actually crossed the Jordan River and that the battle took place here, or if it took place here and they called it part of the territory of Ephraim. It could have taken place in either, based upon the chronology. But the point is, is that the battle really wasn't decided by David's men. The battle was decided by the Lord. And that's what it means when it says the forest took more people that day than the sword. So when David is getting the play-by-play -play after the fact, he knows that the hand of God is, is upon him uh, to continue in the task which he's been called. Even though for a while it looked like maybe that wasn't the case. Because you see the hand of the Lord preserving, protecting, and providing for David so that he can serve and protect and provide for the people. And... The fact that uh, Absalom gets caught between heaven and earth is kind of ironic uh, because it shows something about the pride of men, and we'll unpack that next week. Um, also, something we didn't have a chance to revisit this week because of my rabbit trails was the whole issue of um, that the woman lied, that you see a, still an intrigue unpacking itself here. For us. You see Joab and his uh, works and all of these things that are happening as the soap opera unfolds, right? But one thing that's important to understand, and this is something that I read to you last week, uh, is this statement. What this is telling us and what David shows us is how we do live. This is kind of the way that we find ourselves in the world today.
not how we should live. And so when we read this and we say, it sounds like lying is being condoned. That's not true. God does not condone lying. God does not condone this kind of intrigue that we see in human systems. What it's telling us is how it actually happened. But there's a larger story that we don't want to neglect in some of the uh, ethical dilemmas that we come across. And so we need to talk more about the ethical dilemmas, and we need to talk more about the intrigues of men, but we need to always keep in focus what it is that God's telling us and what he's calling us to. And in this case, he had called David to serve Israel, not only the people of Judah, but the whole of Israel. And what we're going to see as this passage plays out is that rebellion destroyed uh, the nation. It actually caused another civil war. And what's going to happen is David is going to reunite the nation one more time. North and south. But we understand that these are systems of men still. Even though David is a representative of God, there's still fragility there. And it's going to play out for years to come. All the way to the very end. When you read the final battle that occurs between God and men, you'll see the same kind of fracturing and alliances that happen. We want to talk more about that. Let's go ahead and, and close here in prayer. And uh, thank you for bearing with us. Lord, we are so thankful for what you show us in your word. And Lord, uh, bury it deep in our hearts that in those times when we see the events of this world unfold, that we'll, know, we'll remember what you said and that the story is really the same from the beginning to the end about what you're doing and what went wrong and, uh, and why you came. Whether it be December 25th or some other day, Lord, the fact is, is that you came that you cared and loved us so much that you came as a man taking on all of the fragility and, and shame and everything that is associated with uh, Jesus coming into the world and that you did that for our sake. And Lord, help us as we move through this holiday season to share with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, our co-workers, that which you've done in our lives through your son Jesus. Lord, Give us words, give us actions that demonstrate that. Lord, we ask for your protection as we go from here. Uh, keep us safe. Allow us to return and study your word more. Um, but if you do call us into uh, even surrendering our lives, Lord, we ask that we do that faithfully in, in a way that um, represents you to the world as the Savior. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the time that we'll have this morning with Pastor Bob. ask that you... Uh, anoint him with your spirit to speak to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. In your name. <coughs> Amen. Thank you.